Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore, long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. Around midsummer in 1970, Ed Westerdahl finally agreed to talk to the two hippies who'd been politely pestering him for the previous week. These young people had come to Salem from Portland in an old Opal cadet. They wanted to talk to the governor, Tom McCall, and Westerdahl was McCall's chief of staff. Westerdahl had initially blown them off, hoping they'd give up and go away, but they'd shown no sign of doing so. And so, no doubt with a heavy sigh, Westerdahl had them come in and talk to him. The proposal the two visitors laid on Westerdahl that day was straight-cut dynamite. It was, to put it mildly, phenomenally controversial. It would lead directly to the first and only Dope Smoky Music Festival ever sponsored and financed by a state government, under a Republican governor, no less. It would foil the plans of several schemers, including, quite possibly, the President of the United States, each of whom thought an outbreak of bloody violence in Portland would work to his advantage and it would get the governor re-elected in a landslide several months later. To understand the particular brilliance of the hippies' crazy scheme, it's necessary to spend a little time on backstory. The summer of 1970 was a wild time in America, particularly in college towns. That whole late 1960s cornucopia of, I might call it that, of social and political upheavals had been raging for three years. It had just started showing a few signs of simmering back down when, in April, President Nixon decided he was going to invade Cambodia. This decision was not popular on American college campuses, which were full of people of military age, many of whom had come to college hoping that by the time they graduated, the war would be over. Now it looked like Nixon was just deploying Phase 2. All across the country, campuses exploded, and at one of them, Kent State University in Ohio, soldiers actually killed four students. This was on May 4, 1970. After Kent State, there was a nationwide coordinated call for students to go on strike. Across the country, 21 campuses in 16 states closed down. In Oregon, there were violent protests at the University of Oregon in Eugene, and a thousand students howled in fury and hurled bricks and rocks at the ROTC building. At Oregon State University in Corvallis, the ROTC building was bombed. Both these universities stayed open during the strike, but it was at the state's newest university, which just one year earlier had been known as Portland State College, that things got really intense. At PSU, a large cohort of students responded immediately to the strike, and 135 professors canceled their classes in solidarity. University President Gregory Wolf initially kept PSU open, but he did try to head off conflict by taking out permits for the park blocks where the protesters had positioned themselves, hoping to avoid confrontations between protesters and police. As the week ground on, things got more and more out of control. The students blocked off the streets around the park blocks and occupied the student center, which some of their number joyfully trashed in full view of everyone. On May 7th, Wolf closed the campus down for a cooling-off period. 
it didn't work. If anything, things heated up. For the next four days, other students and local rowdies attracted to the action swelled the ranks of protesters. By Monday, May 11th, when PSU's permits expired, Portland Mayor Terry Schrunk and Parks Commissioner Frank Ivancy were fed up with the scene and itching to meet the disorderly students with a firm show of force. So, bright and early the next morning, cops and sanitation workers moved in and dismantled the barricades. The students promptly rebuilt them, so the cops came back around noon wearing riot gear. Their orders this time, clear out the park. Quote, the leader ordered us to disband or be arrested, PSU professor David Horowitz recalled in an interview with historian Doug Kent Crispin. And I think we booed or something like that. And then they methodically moved in and just basically started clubbing people, very methodically. In the end, about 31 protesters needed medical care. And the most militant among the anti-war people, a group calling itself the People's Army Jamboree, had a new rallying cry. They also had more members, because resentment of the cops' brutality had radicalized some of the more peaceful ones. Many of the people the cops had clubbed had been waiting passively to be arrested, so the force seemed gratuitous to most onlookers. As the Jamboree moved quickly to take advantage of the opportunity, it got help from an unexpected quarter. The American Legion, the socially conservative organization of American veterans. On May 25th, Jamboree members learned that the Legion was holding its annual national convention in Portland in late August and that Richard Nixon, their bete noire, would be there. What an opportunity, right? Breathless newspaper stories started appearing as May ripened into June and the Jamboree's leaders talked blithely of a, quote, confrontation with 50,000 angry rock-throwing radicals squaring off with 25,000 crew-cutted legionnaires in the streets of Portland as Dick Nixon himself looked on. Word started getting around that Portland was to be the scene, the place where the revolution would start. Local Legion members rose to the occasion, boasting on TV about their eagerness to thrash those dirty long-haired pinkos. And as for Commissioner Ivancy, Mayor Shrunk, and the other Portland police leaders, well... Everybody pretty much knew what kind of role they were looking forward to playing. Meanwhile, Governor McCall, after contacting all the parties to this little brewing war, started to realize that none of them really wanted to avoid it. The Nixon administration, it seemed to him, welcomed the prospect of big, scary riots in a faraway city in a fourth-tier state. They'd be just the ticket to drive home the president's re-election message that law and order were at risk of a full-on breakdown. The People's Army Jamboree was hoping the prospect of conflict would shore up its support among the less pugnacious of the anti-war activists whose ardor was cooling noticeably as time passed. And the Legion just wanted to put those hippies in their place and show them it would not be pushed around by any crowd of long hairs. As time marched on, the governor realized he was in a trap. There was nothing he could do, it seemed, but activate the National Guard and wait and hope Portland would somehow fail to explode. Nothing, that is, until those two hippies in the Opal Cadet wore down Westerdahl's defenses and got their proposal in front of him. We'll talk about the hippies' proposal and the governor's reaction and the resulting Vortex One Music Festival in next week's column. This story was first published on June 1st of 2014 under the headline, Riot at PSU Set the Stage for, quote, Governor's Pot Party. Key sources included works by Brent Waltz, Brandon Staley, Andy Lindbergh, and Doug Kent Crispin. 
Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.